Welcome back to Finnegan and Friends, the show about flowing along through infinity. In Finnegan's Wake, characters turn into other characters. Everything flows into something else. The first word is a lowercase river run, and from there on it all just continues to flow. And Olivia Pluribel, or ALP, the wife of HCE, is also Dublin's River Liffey. And hers is the last line of the book. It ends without a conclusion, without a period, like this. The keys to, given, away, alone, alast, aloved, along the... That's it, that's the end of the book. Suggesting it might begin again, like Finnegan rising from the dead. Here's the novelist Joshua Cohen. You know, it's a water book. It's a real book that washes over you, and you have to kind of let it pass you like a river. The wateriness of Finnegan's Wake recalls the stuff of myth and dreams. I talked about it with Elok Ja, science journalist and author of The Water Book. Every theology has a water origin story. Um, you know, in Genesis, in the Bible, God created the world above the still waters. You know, the water was already there. In, in Islam, in Hinduism, in various other places, water is an important part of all rituals. Uh, every culture has a, a flood myth of some sort where water comes to cleanse the earth. Alwyn Fuere, actor and director, staged an adaptation of Finnegan's Wake called River Run. She saw the cosmic rush of the river. More classical academic readings of the book will kind of say, oh, well, the river only starts to speak in the last 10 pages. ALP is a very specific character within it and everything like that. But what I found was that the river is speaking in a lot of the, in a lot more of the book than people give her credit for. <laughs> and, um, the river actually it's a kind of a microcosm of the whole journey of the book. I mean, there, there are a lot of references to the Egyptian the Book of the Dead, you know, the journey through the underworld, the journey of the soul through the underworld. And if you actually trace it, so much of it happens on a river in the Egyptian Book of the Dead tradition. The soul goes along a river. It was that journey of the river that I then pasted on to the evolution that is in the book. It sort of starts with the beginning of time really. It starts almost with the Big Bang in many ways. I traced my way backwards from the last 10 pages where, you know, ALP starts to very specifically speak with Soft Morning City. And I traced my way back from that. I said, no, that's, that's too easy a beginning. That, that's just like giving her one, one manifestation, which is Anna Olivia Pluribel as, as a river. Also, it's a very easy part of the book, the Anna Olivia Pluribel final section. When I say the ALP section, people often think I'm talking about the washers of the fort, which is completely different. And I don't know why they always think that that's what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> I kind of kept working my way backwards along the book until I said, I, I need to find a good starting point. And then I found the starting point at the beginning of book four, which is Sandias, 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 calling all downs, calling all dawns today, hooray. That to me was, okay, that's the sunrise. But it's also, in my mind, this was the kind of the birth of the river. So it was, and this is what I kind of used in the performance of it. It was the water coming up through the ground and greeting the sky in a way and greeting the sun before she goes on this journey from her birth to her death, basically, because the end of the book is a kind of death. It is a death, but it's also a rebirth because you go back to the beginning again. And attending to water and the river's course reminds you of the basic elemental dance of the wake. It's not about character or story. It's about some kind of molecular shift. And I think Finnegan's Wake has 
is is sort of like I don't know the quantum physics of literature sometimes. <laughs> so I think it affects a transformation or a change in the body when you use that sort of language and that musicality and that imagery. Something else happens. I went into the whole thing about memory, you know, water containing memory, and there are all sorts of evidence that water actually records events, you know, in a sort of molecular way. So you can you can do all these tests, you play notes in the water, the drop of water will have a different molecular structure and all that kind of stuff. But the water in there is, is never stagnant, you know, it's constantly changing and it's constantly gathering information and giving out more probably. And that's why the river and the ocean are key to the whole book, I think, you know, the, the journey of the river into the ocean. And it's the force of this fluid movement in language that starts to carry us away in Finnegan's Wake. We simply flow along with the words, it happened to, to Alwyn Fuere's audience at her adaptation of The Wake. I would get people who just couldn't engage with it, you know, but, but they would stay. It was a bit like people had been down through, you know, been on a wild trip through the rapids. Um, there was this sort of um, exhilaration, I suppose, is how I would describe it, from people after they saw it, which I loved. You know, I loved to see that mad, wild exhilaration in people's eyes. I mean, critically, yes, it did do incredibly well, although there would be some critics who just couldn't go with it at all. Actually, I think I remember the New York Times was, was very negative. They felt that I should have illuminated the book in some way, which is the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, I'd be a bit like Joyce in that way when he when people would ask him, is this what this means? And he'd said, oh, I must throw more obscurity on the matter. You know, I wanted it to be an ex- an experiential, yeah, wild ride along white water through the rapids. Sometimes I got people who were deeply, I suppose, emotional about it. There's a strong letting go, the death, letting go thing at the end. I was present when my father died and then, um, his face took on this extraordinary mask in the few hours after he had died, a bit like a Japanese wooden mask. His face began to look like a wooden mask of ecstasy. And I used that as the kind of final, I suppose, mask for myself of my face at the end on the away along Alaska loved along the... The water of the book carries us along. And it also refreshes our thinking about interconnection. The Joycean Catherine O'Callaghan explains. In his earlier works in The Dead, for example, or in the works of other Irish writers of the time, there's this movement west that goes across the land and you cross over the Shannon River, the mutinous Shannon waves into the west. But actually in Finnegan's Wake, the journey tends to be from the bays of the west, from Galway Bay and Clue Bay, around the country and back into Dublin Bay. When you look at even Joyce's earlier writings about the west of Ireland, he goes to visit the Aran Islands and, and, and Galway. He thinks about Galway Bay and the bays in the west in terms of how their connections with other ports, like the port in Trieste. So he's thinking about the country, not just in this urban rural divide or easterly westerly, but rather the connections of the country as a whole through a network which is partly an oceanic network. To grasp all this, we need to think more about ALP and Olivia Pluribel, the character who's also the River Liffey. I asked Joseph Nugent, how does that figure work here? How does ALP work in this book? Uh, I'm speaking here, actually looking out, I'm, I'm literally 20 yards from Anne Olivia herself. 
I'm right just down the road from O'Connell Bridge, that place with which Joyce was very familiar, crossing a river that he knew terribly well. One point about the book, of course, is that it is about rising and falling in public opinion. It's certainly about the fall of Tim Finnegan, the character from the song, who fell, that's to say, fell as badly as he can fall. He fell onto the ground and broke his skull. He fell into death, but he rose again. And among all the falls and rises within the book, the falls and rises of empires, of civilizations, fall and rise of Humpty Dumpty, of people, there is the fall and rise, the eternal fall and rise within the world of, of the earth itself, the fall and rise of rain and water. The beginning of the River Liffey, right up in the Wicklow Mountains, becoming that tiny trickle that flows and gathers speed and gathers width and gathers momentum until it eventually emerges here in the grandeur of Dublin Bay to be swept out into the, into the Irish Sea and into the oceans then only to be lifted up again by the process, by the sun, to be turned into clouds, to sweep back and to fall down again as rain and to trickle into the top of the Wicklow Mountains to get. The eternal cycle of that, I think, absolutely fascinated uh, Joyce. He loved that, and that, that became embodied within the figure of a woman, of A.L.P., Anna Livia Plurabella, the most beautiful of women. That's, that's one thing to say about Anna Livia, but I'm afraid there are an awful, awful, awful lot more. It's, it is, after all, Finnegan's Wake. We know how water makes our environments, our world, our bodies, but the cosmic scope of water there throughout Finnegan's Wake, is really mind-blowing. Here's a look, Ja. The thing that I suppose might sort of surprise a lot of people about water is, despite the fact that it's incredibly common on the Earth, you know, 70% of the Earth's surface is water, and if you think of your own body, 70% of it is water. What might surprise people about it is that all of those molecules of water came not from the Earth. The Earth's water is comes from space. It was uh, made around the dust clouds that were sort of swirling around the uh, the very early sun four billion years ago the molecules of water were created in a very sort of convoluted and strange way they have ended up four billion years later you know on the earth inside you inside all the plants and animals and living things that we know of they're as old as uh, the older in fact than the solar system all of these molecules of water. And not every single molecule, because some are created in chemical processes, but a vanishingly small amount compared to what's actually there. I think it's interesting to know that almost half of you, or more of you than half of you, and, and definitely most of this liquid on the Earth is, is actually alien. The, the sun is formed four billion years ago. Um, you know, four and a half billion years ago, the sun is sort of forming from the dust and gas clouds in this part of the Milky Way. The sun is being created at the centre of one of these slightly dirty gas clouds. Um, so if the hydrogen is starting to condense and uh, under, under its own gravity and fuse, and then it forms a star. But around it, there are lots and lots of other elements. And so there are these microscopic or nanoscopic pieces of carbon, for example, that are sort of floating around. And every so often, um, an atom of hydrogen will hit it. Every so often, an atom of oxygen will hit it. And these, remember, oxygen has been created, carbon's been created from the first generation of stars. And they're just sort of floating in space, in, in sort of the vacuum of space. 
and occasionally these these microscopic bits of carbon will have these atoms hit it and most often nothing will nothing will have further will go on these uh, these atoms of hydrogen and oxygen just sort of float off into space but occasionally these the atoms will chemically react hydrogen and oxygen to form a molecule of water and there you are there's a molecule of water now very occasionally that molecule of water will survive um the, the most often what happens is the harsh radiation of space will split it up again. So we're talking about sort of very rare events when the actual atom of water, sort of molecule of water, sort of sticks onto the, um, onto the carbon. Now, over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, molecules of water sort of accrete on the surface of this bit of carbon, this dust. And that dust becomes essentially encased in ice. And over more time, those um, grains of uh, carbon covered in ice uh, move together to form stones they those stones form come together to form boulders and then rocks and then bigger sort of objects which are rocky which then come together to form the planets I and mean, essentially the the inner planets are all rocky and they form from these tiny grains of various minerals and uh, rocks that sort of were floating around the sun for hundreds of thousands of years and in in the early earth you see this, the, all, all these sort of um, uh, grains that have come together, and it's plenty of water. But in those first few hundred thousand years, 100 million years of the Earth, it was incredibly hot. It was a very uncomfortable place. The geologists, they call it the Hedean, where it's, it's volcanic, it's hot, it's, it's not any place for life. In fact, we don't think life existed back then. And a lot of the water contained within these grains that uh, I talked about, um, it was driven off into space because it was just so hot and there wasn't much of an atmosphere, so there wasn't much pressure to keep the water on there. So, you, you know, you end up with this planet that's kind of dry and kind of unlivable. So where does the water come from? Well, there are still plenty of grains of various minerals covered in, in ice, as I described earlier, floating around in the solar system. And these form asteroids and, and comets, which tended to be banished to various parts of the solar system. So either the, the meteorite belt in the centre of the solar system or they're much further out beyond Pluto. And there's, a, there's all sorts of comets and meteorites and things, just, just uh, asteroids out there. And about 500 million years after the Earth forms, something disturbs the asteroids uh, at the edge of the solar system and loads and loads and loads of them start to rain down head towards the sun and in between them and the sun is the earth and so loads of them rain down onto the earth um bombarding the earth at a sort of unimaginable rate um for for hundreds of millions of years and it's called the late heavy bombardment these asteroids and comets hit the earth all of them carry a little bit of water from the edge of the solar system that's where the oceans that we see today they come from they come from payloads of water on asteroids or comets at the end of the solar system and which arrives on our earth about half a billion years after the earth formed how does water sustain life how, how does life work through water it's a very simple molecule, but it's got a couple of useful bits of chemistry that it can do. Now, there are lots of things about water that people, you know, so chemists are still discovering. Um, it doesn't really behave like a normal liquid. By that, I mean, for example, if you cool it down, it gets more and more dense, like everything does when you cool it down, uh, any liquid. But at four degrees Celsius, it's at its most dense. And after that, when you cool it down further, three degrees, two degrees, one degree, and then to freezing, the water actually starts to expand. Ice, for example, at zero degrees Celsius, when it 
once water becomes a solid, it's actually less dense than the liquid at the same temperature, which is very bizarre. It's not that's not a normal thing for chemists to sort of see. Anything else that sort of cools down gets more and more dense, and you know less and less. Uh, you know the, the the solid will always sink to the bottom of its own liquid form. It does this because the way that the water molecule sort of crystallizes, the way that the crystal structure forms, it forces lots of space between the molecules, which means that there's essentially uh, the, the thing will become less dense um, than the water's liquid, where the molecules can actually get much, much closer. So water floats. You know, it's a very, very bizarre chemistry, chemical thing, but every single day, every one of us is very familiar with this because ice floats in our drinks. You have a drink on a summer's day and you put ice in it and it floats. Now, any normal chemical, solid, should go right down to the bottom, but it doesn't. Now, we don't see how weird that is because we're so used to it. And that, I think, the fact that ice floats gives you a window into something very bizarre about water. Number one, it's all around you and it's completely blasé and it's boring. But number two, when it does show you how weird it is, you just don't see it because we're so used to it. It's, it's all of its strange properties. So why is water floating on its uh, liquid form interesting? I mean, it's just it's a curiosity, I guess, but there is a really interesting sort of life function for that. So if you think about the history of the Earth, the climate has changed over time. Sometimes it's there are ice ages where the entire surface of the earth completely freezes over so all the all the oceans uh, lakes everything they all freeze over now we know that liquid water has been fundamental for the formation of life through the history of the earth three and a half four billion years ago whenever life formed it happened using or in water and continuously has evolved now to the rich diversity of life we see around us and that has required an unbroken chain of evolution to happen now, if you have a situation on a planet like Earth, where all the water freezes temp every so often, every few million, every few billion years, then everything in that water will be destroyed and nothing can survive in, in solid ice. But the fact that ice actually floats on water, the fact that, you know, if you have um, an ice age and there's some life form in the lake that's, you know, a microbe or something that's just newly evolved, and then when the ice age comes along, the top of the lake will freeze and the water at the bottom at four degrees Celsius is the densest. So that will never freeze. It will just be liquid at four degrees throughout history. The fact that there's been continuously liquid water on this earth since the beginning of the, of the planet, pretty much, means that life has had all that time to evolve and to diversify into the rich diversity we see today. And if it wasn't for the fact that water just demonstrated this bizarre tendency to float on itself, you wouldn't have life in the rich diversity you see it today. So that's just one example. Chemists had list about 50 different properties of water which don't really conform to normal chemistry. Each are in themselves fascinating and kind of scary to understand because they're so complicated. Chemists and all scientists like to have simple rules for things. And when something breaks the rules, it's a little bit difficult to understand. So water is one of those things. So all those things, all those different properties are used in some way to further the way that life can function. And life requires a medium in which to do all its things like exchange energy or to build proteins it's or to contain its DNA in a certain way and it uses water to do all those things it uses various properties of water that are a bit bizarre to do all the things that life needs to function at a biomolecular level. Is it fair to say that water is the theory obliterator that the system breaker? Yeah it, it really is um, the breaker of theories um, because 
it's just so very complicated to understand. I mean, it's, it's a very simple molecule, but its interactions are so multifarious and multifaceted and difficult to understand that you need a lot of computing power and much more refined understanding of quantum mechanics than perhaps for other more complicated molecules, which, which behave as you might expect. It's not that it's magical in any way. It's not that you can't explain it. It's just that it's taken a long time to get to the point where the simulation capabilities or the fine grainness you need to, to understand these theories can handle water. And for a long time, people just ignored water. They just didn't study it because it was impossible to do. And, you know, if we decide that water is the thing that you need for life, then it really is the thing you need to understand in all the different sort of environments that it could possibly be in. Is there a way we can look at water, we can study water, in order to better understand how the micro realm, the atomic, the subatomic connects with the astronomic? Does water clarify certain links between these different scales? The last how many years, 40, 50 years of discovery and exploration in space, um, you know, looking for other planets, looking for, into the atmospheres of Jupiter, Mars uh, and beyond. All of it is essentially the attempt to try and find and study water in different places. You know, you can sort of dress it up as, oh, we're going to explore Venus, we're going to explore Saturn. And of course, you want pictures and you want to understand all the other elements and things there. But really, it's been a long term attempt to try and find whether there are other planets, other situations where life might exist. And if you want to know where life is, then the first thing you want to find is water. The caveat, of course, is that you know we're, we're looking for life like ours. So if it's life like ours, it needs water. Every single life form on the Earth evolved from the same ancestor, which needs, and every single life form on Earth needs water to do all its biological processes. By understanding all of the different forms of water here, the way that it interacts with itself and other things, we can extrapolate that to other locales in the galaxy and further afield. Understanding water is fundamental to understanding whether you know we're the only life form out there. And if we are the only life form out there, then why is it that we're the only life form? What, what is it about the fact that there's water everywhere else and none of the other places have created life? What is it about those environments that's different to ours that makes ours special or if there's water if there's water everywhere and it turns out that 0.01 percent of those places have some sort of microbial life that's interesting too to know that is the biggest question i think scientists and astronomers face i'm curious if there are any sort of connections parallels analogs we might make between water and consciousness between the way water sort of reacts and moves and the way we think about thinking there are emergent properties that water has the thing about water is that the, the molecules are very simple, but you, you put trillions of them together and they do very interesting and emergent things that you might not expect for that many molecules to be in one place. But they can be explained. If you if you were to able to model each one of those molecules or predict it through statistics how each one of those molecules is interacting with the other one and you had big enough computers, you, you, you would get most of the properties and... You know, there might be some fuzziness around the edges, but that's just a fine-tuning issue. To us, however, as humans, being told that water does all these things and perhaps goes beyond the realms of explainable chemistry, you know, kind of suggests and plays with the idea that it's something more than just a chemical. Uh, I still believe it's just a chemical. <laughs> it just is just a very special and very capable chemical. The fact that it does all these strange things is only strange because we haven't, we can't explain them right now. But we will be able to explain them. And 
it's just over the horizon of understanding, basically. But it's not that it's something that they'll never be able to explain. Um, it's just very complicated. You know, human behaviour is also very complicated, but I don't think it's magical in any way or conscious in its own way. You, what happens with lots of humans is that the, there are emergent properties that come from there. And you might say a crowd has an emergent property to it, or it might have something which sounds or feels conscious in one way because it behaves in a particular way and lots of crowds behave in the same way people do study those sorts of things actually emergent behavior is a very well studied thing in in ecology um where you know the the group behaviors of or, or of cells or ants or whatever else is different to the in individual components of that thing and i think maybe water is at the most extreme level of that, uh, which is that there are lots of emergent properties from it which create the likeliness or the, the, what seems like consciousness because we can't explain it. I mean, consciousness itself is a very complicated thing that we don't understand in the, in the brain, right? And is also a, an emergent property of the billions and trillions of neurons firing away in different ways in our brain. We can't explain that. But I wouldn't. But a scientist would would say it's just because we haven't got the theories and the capabilities to do so. It's not that there is something else going on there. Now to sort of argue against myself, we call that consciousness, right? We we call it consciousness, and we we make decisions based around it. But is there something going on beyond the sort of the circuits and the electricity and things? I mean, this is a, an argument that philosophers and scientists have been having for a long time and I don't think we're going to solve it here but I'm fairly certain that that doesn't apply to water because water is weird and it does lots of strange things and we will discover why it does those strange things and it will continue to continue to do all those strange things and it will continue to be an outlier on in terms of liquids and do things that other liquids can't do but in a way it's it is explainable it's because of the way that the, the molecules attract each other and bind to each other and don't always stick to each other and uh, it, it, it's a simple molecule with a huge number of possible interactions with itself and i think that that's what makes it so interesting and that's what makes water the perfect medium for rushing through finnegan's wake it's intensely simple gulpable and familiar and bizarre Water is complex, but it comes from very simple things. It's just, it shows you how complex the universe can be, just starting from very, very small rules. You don't need complexity created. Complexity arises from very simple things. And we have an internal innate connection to that complexity. Water is within us. It makes us what we are. In Alwyn Fuere's River Run, she sought to bring out that internal feeling of water. Everything in the production needed to, have, to be fluid. But I was very careful to avoid things like images of water and all of that kind of stuff, because I felt that was something that had to be felt inside the body as opposed to looked at. While we're awash in Finnegan's Wake, we might lose track of where we are in the book's world. That can be off-putting, but if we attune ourselves to its hydrodynamics, if we really wake up to what it is to live in a world of water, we're ready to swim through the book, I think. You have to live with the ambiguity if you don't know whether this is something that happens on, let's say, the ground level of the story, or something that is a story being told by a character on the ground level of a story. You don't know where you are in the stack of nests, you know? And I think that that is one of the triumphs of this book, that you're not supposed to know whether you are in with the teller or, or in with the told. And it's not in infinite regression so much as just it's a constant washing away, a constant washing away. Thank you for listening to Finnegan and Friends. Guests in this series are the novelist Joshua Cohen, author of Wits and Moving Kings, the actor and director Alwyn Fuere, 
who you can see in movies like Mandy, and whose stage adaptation of The Wake is called River Run. Catherine O'Callaghan, Joycean at UMass Amherst, Joseph Nugent, Joycean at Boston College, and impresario behind Zoom in the Wake, which you can watch over on YouTube. Philip Kitcher, emeritus at Columbia University, whose book on the wake is Joyce's Kaleidoscope. Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke, and Elok Jha, science journalist with The Economist, and author of The Water Book, which in this case is not a euphemism for Finnegan's Wake. I'm Adam Coleman, and thanks again.